We will be in Philippians chapter 4, page 1160, someone just said. The page numbers in here is different. But we'll be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Before I read from God's Word this morning, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your Word. May your truth be heard this morning, and may you speak from your Holy Word. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, that we might experience your truth this morning. And pray that your Grace would be upon me, a sinner who seeks to proclaim your word to your church. May the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Seems like a long time ago I was getting ready to spend my first week away at summer camp. One of the highlights of my childhood is going to camp every summer. And that first time, I remember, I was having a wonderful time until it got to be night. And I had to sleep away from home. I had to get over that hump of being away from home for the first time, away from my parents, away from my comfy bed, sleeping in this uncomfortable bunk. Thankfully, the Camp did not allow me to go home due to my homesickness, and I was able to then return every summer with joy. On a more serious note, I remember a time in my life when I was getting ready to have my tonsils removed. Now, at 26 years old, my tonsils had decided that now would be a perfect time to fold over each other while I slept, depriving me of that oxygen I love to have when I sleep. You may not know this, but as a kid, tonsils come out very easily. They just basically pop them out, and the kid is eating pretzels by evening. But as you get older, this surgery gets more and more risky. It's, it's harder on the body to recover, especially when your tonsils are the biggest tonsils a doctor has pulled out of somebody before. Recovery was rough. My friends made fun of the high-pitched voice I had for a week, but I was actually able to start sleeping well. But leading up to that surgery, I was not rejoicing. I was not the most gentle person to the people around me, and I was very anxious. I didn't trust the assurance of the professionals that I was going to be okay. Now, the risk of death at 26 for tonsil surgery was something like 3%, but that didn't stop me from sending my funeral arrangements to my pastor the night before. Paul is writing to the Philippian church to strengthen them, to encourage them, to assure them that everything is going to be okay, despite the risks being associated with Christianity in a post-resurrection era. It's the same for us. Our theme today is that assurance is found in the constant presence of the Lord. We will see the assurance of the Lord in three ways. God calls us to rejoice in all things. God calls us to be gentle to all people. 
And God calls us to be calm in our needs. If you flip over your worship bulletin for this morning, you'll see on the back that there is room for notes there. Before we discuss our first point, before we get going into our points today, I want to discuss this theme of assurance. If we were to look from Genesis to Revelation, we could trace a theme of assurance found in the nearness of the Lord. You can look at those people who came before us and see that God gave assurance to them in His presence. When the Lord is near, assurance is given. Abraham was called by God to leave the place he lived, the place he knew, to go to a new place. Why would someone do this on a whim if they were not sure they wanted to do it? Genesis 12 tells us that Abraham was told by God to leave his homeland. If that happened today, you could think of someone asking him, Hey, Abram, where are you going? Oh, a voice told me to go and leave this place and go somewhere else. If this exchange happened today, you'd think the person was nuts. A voice telling you to go do something? But Abraham wasn't any less human than we are. He may have had less avenues to lead him towards sin than we do, but he was still human. One thing about humans... We do not do things willingly unless we want to do them. Abraham wouldn't just pick up and move his family across the country if he didn't think that it was something he should do. People who pick up their lives and families to go do ministry somewhere else don't go and do that unless they feel the call to go. For the Israelites in Egypt, right, as they're leaving Egypt, they could ask, well, is the Lord really here? And one could say, oh, well, there's a giant pillar of fire hanging in the sky. I'm probably thinking we're going the right way. As time unfolds, God reveals himself more and more. God continues to dwell with his people more and more. If we fast forward in the history of God's people, we see an amazing sight. The temple is completed. And we have this recording in Second Chronicles. Something astounding happens. Second Chronicles 5.13, The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister before the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. God reveals Himself in the most magnificent way. They couldn't even go into the temple because this cloud was so glorious and so thick. God reveals Himself more and more as time goes on. As we follow the history of God's people, we see God reveals Himself more and more. We see Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of God. God was near to Abraham. God was near to the Israelites. But in Christ, God dwelled with His people. God walked the earth with His people. How could one be more assured of God's presence than when Christ is walking with them? Although, God revealed Himself in an even more fulsome way. God sent His holy and all-powerful Spirit to dwell inside His people. God not only is near to His people, God not only dwells with His people, but God dwells inside His people. Assurance is given in the nearness of the Lord. Now, the chief end of assurance is not to give you a good feeling as you do something, but to give you a clear understanding of who you are in Christ, 
who you are because of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. And that's where we find ourselves in Philippians. Paul is writing to the church to remind them who they are in Christ. That because of Christ's death and resurrection, they can withstand the persecution that is coming their way. This is a prison letter. Paul wrote it in prison. And while Paul is being persecuted, he writes to a Philippian church that is also being persecuted. Move into our first point today. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This is a command given by Paul. The imperative, this imperative is the first imperative in a list of imperatives given by Paul. An imperative is a command. There's, there's no wiggle room in an imperative. Right? When a parent asks their child to clean their room or sweep the floor, it isn't a request. They're telling them to do that. When April 15th rolls around, the government requires you to pay your taxes. It isn't a request. And failure to do so results in prison. When God tells you to keep yourself from idols, it isn't a request. And Paul doesn't say rejoice when it's convenient for you. Paul doesn't say rejoice when things are going well. Paul commands the church to rejoice always in all things. And this doesn't happen very often. If he wasn't as clear as you may think, he repeats himself. He says it again, just in case there was any confusion. But yet we know this is a tall order. Having joy in all circumstances, rejoicing in all things. When we lose a loved one, it's hard to rejoice. When tragedy befalls us, it's hard to rejoice. When everything is seemingly taken away from us, how do we rejoice? When we find ourselves with lack of vision, motivation, or leadership, it's hard to rejoice. But Paul wants to encourage them in this. He's encouraging them not to a false happiness, right? He, he doesn't want them to have this false happiness. When I was a, disc, a discus thrower in high school and there was only one spot left, we were all happy for whoever got the spot, even though we wanted it. Right? This isn't a, I'll put on a nice face so that everyone thinks I'm rejoicing. Meanwhile, inside, I am terrified. No, Paul wants his readers to find their supreme joy in all things by resting in the presence of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. In the Lord, this phrase, in the Lord, sets the tone for the imperative given by Paul. As one commentator puts it, no matter the circumstances, there is always a defiant nevertheless. When we rest in the presence of the Lord, we find a supreme joy that cannot be quenched by the horrors of this world. There are people dying in Ukraine. Nevertheless, God will be glorified in this situation. I lament the loss of life, but I rejoice in what the Lord is going to do through it. You may not know this, but the church in Ukraine is growing quicker than ever before. More and more people are coming to know the gospel of Jesus Christ through this tragedy. 
There are many unborn who are being killed in this country every day. Well, less now, praise the Lord. But the practice still continues. I lament the wants and destruction of life, but nevertheless, I know and rejoice in the fact that the Lord will rescue those souls and will one day put an end to this horrible practice. I lament the loss of influential people in my life. I lament the loss of loved ones. When I lost my grandfather, I barely could hold it together as I gave part of his eulogy, ugly crying as I talked about the legacy he left for me. But all the while rejoicing that he is no longer subjected to the evil of this world, but instead has woken up next to his Lord and Savior. When Paul commands us to rejoice, he echoes other commands found in God's Word. Psalm 97, verse 1 and 12, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. Psalm 100, verse 1, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. We lament the evil of this world. But we rejoice in what is said in God's Word that He is near to us. We especially rejoice as we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, what will come to pass in the end. Therefore God has highly exalted Him, that is Christ, and bestowed on Him the name that is above all names, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This isn't something we just say in response to what's happening or the response when life is not as it should be. But this is what actually will happen. A day will come when all will bow before Christ, willingly and unwillingly. Paul wants his readers to find joy in this because in light of their persecution, in light of what's happening to them, Christ is Lord. Nevertheless, Christ will reign supreme. Having joy in all circumstances is really a showing of how much you trust the Lord. And a lack of joy in all circumstances proves the opposite. Because God dwells inside us by way of the Holy Spirit, we can truly find assurance that leads to joy. Assurance in who God is, what God has done for us, and what God will do. Assurance leads us to rejoice in all things. Not only do we find joy in the nearness of the Lord, but we find the courage to be gentle. Philippians 4, verse 5, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now as someone who is forced to study Greek, I mean has the privilege to study Greek, I think a better translation of this word reasonableness would be gentleness. Your ESV Bible probably has a footnote suggesting this as well. Let's go with gentleness. As well, a better translation of the word hand would be the word near. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Two seemingly similar phrases, but have very different meanings. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Now one could read this and think we need to be gentle because the Lord is near. Paul is using the imperative again. 
And we need to be gentle because God's near. But this isn't a threat. This isn't a be gentle because the Lord's going to come. Rather, it's a promise of assurance. Because of the nearness of the Lord to us, we should be gentle to all. In the same way the Lord is gentle to us, so too should we be gentle with those around us. In situations of stress and anger, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us, we can have the boldness to be gentle with the people in our world. Now you've heard me say the courage to be gentle, and now you've heard me say the boldness to be gentle. Brothers and sisters, it's hard to be gentle. One commentator writes that gentleness should not be reserved for family and close friends, but it should be evident to all. For the Philippians, this would be hard to follow. In the midst of persecution, how can one be gentle with their persecutors? Now, we don't suffer persecution, praise the Lord, like the Philippian church did. We don't worry about being dragged off and tortured. But this command of gentleness refers also to not always fighting for what is rightfully yours. As Americans, this is hard for us. We love our rights in America, and rights are not a bad thing. One thing that I reflected on as writing this sermon is that Aristotle describes the gentle person as the one who by choice and habit does what is equitable and who does not stand on his rights unduly, but is content to receive a smaller share, although he has the law on his side. One easy way to think about being gentle is how we think about we make a living. For those that work and receive a paycheck, you have every right to say that every dollar you make belongs to you. In the eyes of the law, you're entitled to your wages, minus the taxes, of course. Living a life of gentleness is remembering that while you may be entitled to your wages, ultimately everything in your paycheck belongs to the Lord your God. One way we can have a spirit of gentleness is by trusting God to provide us with what we need. Making sure that we have a cheerful heart as we give back to God from what He has given us. Ultimately, everything we make, everything we own, anything and everything actually belongs to God our Father. Now, this is one modern example of how we can live out this command, but I think another example of how to live out this command to be gentle is much harder. Try letting more than one person merge in front of you when the left lane is ending. My wife has cautioned me to not use so many traffic analogies in my sermons, and I tell her it's the one thing that we all need to work on. Praise the Lord, we do not suffer persecution like our forebearers. But if you are looking for the chief example of gentleness, look no further than your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we look to Christ's example, we see a form of gentleness that surpasses any other example. In the days leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus, the author of creation, the supreme ruler of the universe, allows himself to be treated poorly. He allows himself to be beaten. 
The one who knows the depths of the hearts of his attackers. The one who knows what it's like to be outside of time. The one who has the power and authority to destroy those standing before him. Treats his attackers with gentleness. Paul writes to the Philippians in order that they would follow Christ's example. Encouraging them to let the world around them see that they are different. Now, letting people merge in front of you may be difficult. And Paul had no idea what a car was or what construction in the summer is like. But he does know the human heart. He knew that the human heart has a propensity for anger. He knew that the human heart has the ability to be cruel, mean, and unforgiving. A spirit of gentleness is commanded of us because God Himself dwells inside us. Because of the Holy Spirit, we can be gentle. We can be charitable. We can be pleasant and forgiving in all circumstances. In the assurance of the nearness of the Lord, we find the courage to be gentle. As well as being gentle, we find that joy and gentleness lead us to something else. They lead us to peace. Verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We recently took our senior high youth to North Carolina for a discipleship trip. We basically tell them that we're going to bribe them by taking them to mountains if we spend four hours a day studying the Bible. We spent time talking about prayer in in the realm of Colossians. We spent time each night breaking up into groups to pray for each other, spending intentional time in prayer by ourselves. We dwelt with these two verses. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. When was the last time you spent significant time in prayer? When was the last time you met with your fellow Christians just to pray? Just to spend time seeking the will of the Lord our God? Prayer is not done only by folding your hands, closing your eyes, and bowing your head. Now those things are good and reflect a good body language in prayer. But prayer can also be done while you're driving, while you're doing data entry, while you're cleaning, while you're building a deck, while you're fixing a car. Prayer is a conversation with God. Paul wants to encourage his readers to take all things to the Lord in prayer. Because the Lord is near to us at all times, we can pray to Him at all times. Paul knows that in times of trouble, anxious thoughts abound. Paul commands his readers to give up their obsession with worrying. Easier said than done. 
But as we give our needs over to God, as we trust God and spend our precious time talking with God, we can find peace. As we bring our hopes and our fears, our needs and our thankfulness to God, we can find peace because he is near to us. When we have a robust joy in the Lord, when we seek to show our gentleness to the world around us, we can rest in a peace that passes all understanding. We say this a lot. Well, at least I do. I pray for it most nights with my wife, that God would give us a peace that passes all understanding. What what does that mean? When we pray this, what does that mean? It means having peace when you have no real reason To be at peace. For the Philippians, in the wake of persecution, when death comes, they can have a peace that the world does not understand. That this peace is near to us as well. The theme of a peace that passes all understanding, we hear this a lot at funerals, right? We hear this a lot at funerals. When a family has lost a loved one, we pray that God would give them peace that passes all understanding. When a worldly person loses a loved one, they feel a variety of emotions, anger, grief, sorrow. But for Christians, it's different. Yes, we still miss the loved one. We still feel emotions for the loved one. We are sad. But because we have hope in Christ, we know that the one who has passed away has awoken in a much better place. I mentioned my grandfather earlier. He's a wonderful man. He knew everything. We would be somewhere in Tennessee having dinner and he would be able to bond with the waiter or waitress because he somehow knew the mascot of the high school they attended. We still miss him. When, when he passed, it was very sad. I'm sad that he will not get a chance to meet my daughter when she's born. But there is nothing. There is not a thing in this world that I would seek to give up to bring him back from glory. There's not a bone in my body that wishes to recall him from his Lord and Savior. You see, for Christians, we have every right to be mad or sad when we lose a loved one. But we give up that right because we know that God has given us peace in that situation because the person we lost is in glory. talked about this with a friend once and they told me that you can't say that you wish your grandfather or you can't say that you're happy that your grandfather is gone you should wish him back i'm not happy he's gone i'm happy for where he is when things are taken away from us when our suffering is happening because of one thing or another. When all things in life seem to be the opposite of what we think they should be. When we lose a friend, when we lose a spouse, when we lose a child. Because of the assurance of the nearness of the Lord, we can know peace. In all things, we can say to God be the glory. The mark of a Christian is one who has a robust joy in all things. Someone who is known for their gentleness and one who has a peace when they shouldn't. 
And at this juncture, you may be thinking to yourself, this doesn't really describe me. It's true that none of us will have these three things perfectly on this side of eternity. But if we become people of prayer, if we take all things to the Lord in prayer, if we remember that we are near to Him at all times, these things are at our grasp. We can have them. It's going to take time. This is the process of sanctification. Day after day, God reforming us, refining us, so that we would be more like Him. And as we should do when we contemplate God's Word, as we should always do, we must read God's Word, this section of Philippians, in light of what's to come. Revelation 21.5, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. The long-awaited day will come. The day when the Lord will draw His people to Himself. All peoples will come before Him. We will bow and confess with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, how the, the Lord will change on that day. The presence of the Lord will change forever. While we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us now, a day is coming when our sins will be cleared away and we will be fully righteous. And instead of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us, we will dwell with our triune God forever. God will dwell with His people forever. And Revelation tells us that we will need no more sun. We will not need light because God will be our light. We will not need a temple. We have a beautiful building here to worship God, but we won't need it because God will be our temple. And on that day, we will not need to take anything to the Lord in prayer because all opposition will cease. All sad things will become untrue. And we will forever rest in the presence of God knowing perfect joy, perfect gentleness, and perfect peace. The Lord will call to us. He'll call us further up and further in to our eternal rest in Him and with Him. To God be all glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we can read it and understand it. We thank You that You have called us to not be like this world. Father, give us a spirit that is willing to be joyful. Give us a spirit that is willing to be gentle. And give us a peace that passes all understanding. When the trials of this world call to us to be angry, when the drivers on the road do something that angers us, When loved ones are taken home, help us to rest in the assurance that you are near. Father, as we go forth into this world this week, I pray that you would protect us and guide us as we journey to reach the lost. Give us strength. Help us to be bold in our gentleness. Pray that you'd bring us 
back safely next week, that we would continue to sit under the reading and the teaching of your word, and that we would see your glory day after day until you call us home to our eternal rest. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.